The word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 5. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Back in college, I took an elective class about church music and worship, and one of the assignments was to visit three non-Lutheran congregations to observe their worship services. The first one I attended was a small evangelical congregation, and my only lasting memory was that the congregation had a practice of welcoming visitors by pointing them out to everybody before the service began. Now. Some will caution that this makes visitors feel like a deer caught in the headlights, but that was not the case for me. Introvert that I am, it made me feel more like a deer mounted on somebody's trophy wall. The next church was an established downtown Episcopalian congregation with liturgy and choir, and from that service I still remember the beautiful architecture and the beautiful music. The third church was a non-denominational megachurch, and my biggest memory is a potted plant. At the front of the sanctuary was a stage, and on the stage was a podium and a potted plant. Nothing else. No altar, no communion rail, no pyramids, no candles, no cross. I actually inquired about this, and I learned that the philosophy of that church was that a cross would make some people feel uncomfortable, and so the leadership had decided that there would be no crosses in the sanctuary. Now, I've got to admit that the potted plant was certainly not offensive, and while it is surely long gone and all generations will not call it blessed, it lives on in my memory, and now it lives on in your memory. But even then, it struck me that a church would purposely omit a cross because people might find it offensive. 
Dozens of rock and pop musicians were wearing crosses at the time, often profanely. So it seemed really odd that a church would avoid a cross to try to be sensitive to the culture. To their credit, though, the place was slick, it ran like clockwork, and it was clearly a place for shakers and movers. The Corinthian congregation in our epistle is most decidedly not that. Read through those books of the Bible and it's a church full of problems because it's full of people with problems. Nobody is pretending otherwise. In fact, St. Paul writes to them saying, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. The congregation sounds like a whole bunch of people with a whole lot of problems. The sorts who do a lot of menial labor and don't get invited to a lot of parties. And this really isn't that unusual. If there's a Venn diagram with rich and famous celebrities in one circle and devout Christians in the other, the overlap is going to be small. It's one of the reasons why the world finds it easy to say that Christianity is for people who are weak, who are failures, who can't handle life on their own, and who don't trust themselves. I would criticize this more severely, except that we gather here each week, and in the confession of sins, we say that we're weak, and we fail, and we can't handle living on our own, or we can't handle dying on our own for that matter, and we also don't trust ourselves. The problem is that the world views this without any sense of hope, and thinks that we gather here deluding ourselves that there's a better world ahead because we're never going to get very far in this one. If the world turned and believed in Christ and Him crucified, then it would have a much better and different opinion of the church. And that is precisely the point that St. Paul is making. In other words, the appearance of the church is directly connected to the gospel. If the gospel of Christ and Him crucified is foolishness to the world, then Christians who embrace the gospel will also appear to be fools. And that's fine with you and me, because that foolish gospel means that Christ is our righteousness. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Along with our righteousness, Christ is also our sanctification because he has cleansed us of our sin by washing us clean in holy baptism. And this is true because in baptism he joins us to his death and his resurrection. And Christ is also our redemption for he has borne our sins to the cross and paid the wages of sin there so that we might be redeemed for eternal life. By faith, we rejoice in the wisdom of God, Christ, and Him crucified. But without faith, it all looks pretty foolish. So I will say it again, as long as Christ and Him crucified is our proclamation, we will look like fools to the world. It is important to understand this because it has a few implications for your faith and for the ongoing life of this congregation. First off, at present, this congregation currently looks, well, less foolish to the world than a lot of others. 
across Christian congregations in the, in the United States. Average weekly attendance is right around 70 people. Across congregations in the LCMS, the average age of those attending is pretty high. And you won't find all that many churches with as many small children in the pews. Congregations have years of famine and years of plenty. And right now, our cows are pretty fat. And for this, we give thanks to God. The temptation for you and me is to determine that the proclamation of the gospel leads to good numbers in the pew and the offering plate, and that every congregation will be likewise rewarded when they do the same. That simply isn't true. There are plenty of faithful pastors and congregations where the soil isn't so fertile. In fact, there are plenty of faithful pastors and congregations in the world who suffer persecution for what we freely proclaim here, Christ and Him crucified. The danger of this temptation is evident when the years of plenty end. If you've fallen for the notion that the right message means prosperity, then when prosperity dwindles, you'll end up thinking that the gospel isn't the right message anymore. Remember that Whatever our situation, the message of Christ and Him crucified is the power of salvation to all who believe. A second matter is about our lives together, because as the Lord uses the foolishness of the gospel to shame the wise, He also uses foolish congregations to do the same. And a congregation that is full of fools is going to have all kinds of foolishness. The Lord gathers all sorts of people with different backgrounds, personalities, flaws, and habits. You will get along with some. You won't especially get along with others. And there will be some people where you don't mind if they attend the other service. Beware of resenting them. For you are at high risk of resenting God for numbering them and you among the fools he gathers here. And perhaps he uses them to shame you for your worldly wisdom and call you to repentance for your pride. Oh, instead, give thanks to God for his mercy to many. Where there is need for reconciliation between you and a brother or sister, be reconciled where you simply just don't have much more in common than the altar you kneel at together, give thanks that all such strangeness and alienation will be gone at the resurrection. A third matter has to do with worship and outreach. See, there are two basic strategies for worship these days. One is that of the potted plant. It's the thinking that since Christ and Him crucified is offensive to those without faith, you should emphasize other things until you've established a rapport. And once you've established a rapport, then you introduce people to the gospel. You more or less say to people, Hey, we're just like you, except that we have hope and joy because we believe in Jesus. Now, I get the strategy... But sooner or later, you've got to say who Jesus is. So that sentence actually goes, Hey, 
We're just like you, except that we have hope and joy because we believe that a man who was crucified 2,000 years ago was actually also God and his blood atoned for our sins. In other words, sooner or later in spreading the gospel, you've got to actually say the gospel. In that case, I can see a lot of non-Christians saying, so you're really not just like us because we don't believe that foolish gospel. Or perhaps saying, if that's what you believe is the foundation of your church, then how come you don't lead with it? The other strategy then is to lead with it. To lead with the message of Christ and Him crucified. Far from minimizing it, we lean into it. And while the message will be foolishness to the world, we will do our best to adorn it with attention, with reverence, with praise and beauty. We ought never be ashamed of the gospel or ever take it for granted, for it is the power of salvation to all who believe. And it is only through the gospel that the Holy Spirit works repentance and faith. A quote from Dorothy Sayers stands out in my mind. She describes the gospel as, quote, the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and the gate of death. Then she says, show that to the heathen and they may not believe it, but at least they may realize that here is something that a man might be glad to believe. Oh, my fellow fools, be glad to believe in Christ and Him crucified. Speaking of whom, a quick remark on our gospel reading. We've heard in past gospel lessons in this series that when people ask Jesus for a sign, He so often points them to the cross. For instance, He speaks of the sign of Jonah, or He talks about the temple of His body being destroyed and raised up in three days. In tonight's reading, Herod hopes for a sign and Jesus says, nothing. He doesn't point ahead to his suffering or his death because it is happening. The sign he consistently predicted is taking place. There he is, the almighty son of God suffering at the hands of man, enduring lies, mockery, contempt, and soon scourge and nails and cross. One might say that the Son of God is foolish to put up with such treatment, but God says that His Son's suffering and death is for your salvation. God be praised for His foolishness. To Holy Week we go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.